0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of The Goat Farm, episode four. Today we have a guest, Scott Puru. Scott is the chief architect for CSG. We'll talk a little bit about what Scott does here in a second. But with me, as always, is my co host, Ross Clannon. Say hello, Ross. Hello. Uh, So, Ross, you had a topic that you wanted to talk about. You sent me an article earlier in the week. Why don't you talk about that article and, and let's kind of delve into that as our first kind of topic?
1: Sure. So yeah, I read an article this last weekend. Uh, it was actually in Forbes, and it it uh, was titled "Why Man- Why Do Managers Hate Agile," and it was a pretty catalyzing article for me, and one that that definitely got me going on some internal conversations. But the 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 gist of the article is that the world is changing, right? Business is changing very rapidly, and the pace of of changes is happening more and more rapidly, and. It's kind of forcing this this need to rethink how how we manage and how we do things, and there, it's kind of driving people towards this agile movement that's that you know started a while ago, but it's really been gaining more and more steam here in, in recent years. But the article kind of goes on to uh, talk about you know all these these companies now are starting to at least embrace agile in pockets within their organizations. But there's, there's this tension or conflict that's emerging because of the management ideology in these companies and and, and really just generally calling out that management in general is based on a 150-year-old ideology that is based on this idea that you take semi-skilled labor, you need to put a boss in charge, that boss um, sets the goals and the measures and the goal is to try to drive efficiency and productivity of that semi-skilled labor. It's very, you know... 19th and 20th century uh, mentality on, on how to manage workers and, and agiles. And so it, it's based on this, this kind of premise of, of control and agile is like the opposite. It's based on this premise of, of empowering these knowledge workers with this, the, this goal of trying to drive innovation out of the process. And it's, it's more unstructured and and you have self-organizing teams, and management becomes enablers, and not not necessarily the the folks that are measuring and controlling the progress.
0: Right. That's kind of the, so the the traditional way is is known as um, scientific management or Taylorism, mm-hmm. right? And then that kind of flows into the GM way of thinking, and Sloan, uh, which Sloan had a lot of kind of expanded on this idea of Taylorism, maybe Taylorism mm-hmm. two it, it,
1: yeah, it's totally based on that. And what was fascinating for me, though, is it to me, it really highlighted where I feel like the most important thing to focus on to really accelerate these types of transformations in companies. And DevOps, Agile, you know, it, DevOps is referenced in that article as well as just kind of an offshoot of Agile. What was interesting to me, what I took away from that is if we want to accelerate transformations, how do we figure out how to accelerate rebooting leader mindsets like how how can you do that because you know i i can see when i interact with various leaders the leader mindset has so much to do with how the organization underneath them engages into something if they feel empowered they will lean in and they will start to naturally pursue these types of things if they don't feel empowered or if they feel like that you know they're going to be they're kind of held to specific goals and productivity measures that they have to hit within their team. And and there's not a lot of flexibility to go outside of those boundaries, then they don't engage. And so for me, it was like, wow, that's a really important point. And that article, I've probably reread it like three times now. Uh, it also equated the this shift to like the Copernicans in the, uh, what, 1600s, where this whole idea that from the sun, revol- um, you know, revolving around the Earth, to the, the Earth actually orbiting around the Sun, and it, it kind of drew that correlation too, which I thought was kind of interesting. Which really just goes that it's like a fundamental mindset change that people have to go through. And for me, that hit home because I've been working on that mindset for a few years now, and it's hard. And you know, I feel like I'm getting okay at it, but I feel like I still have a long ways to go. So imagine leaders that really haven't leaned in to embrace these things yet.
0: Yeah, and a very interesting point that the article makes is is one of the reasons why you saw in the 60s and 70s and so forth kind of the, the world becoming a little bit more turbulent is because information got more easily accessible, right? And especially right. as the Internet's come about. And the idea is that the, the people on the bottom can educate themselves to maybe what they're being pushed isn't necessarily the right way to think or the right way to... To bring about change in the way that the organization needs to bring about change, so I think that's kind of an interesting way to also look at it. Is that as the people at the bottom have become more intelligent, they're able to make better decisions that might serve the overall goal of the organization better than what the manager can actually push down. Absolutely. So um, Scott, do you have any thoughts on that uh, article or that idea?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, this is—it's obviously a common problem in any sort of legacy organization, and it's one that we've struggled with uh, in our company, trying to go from a traditional tailor-based approach, and there's a couple things that at least we've found, or at least I've found, that that really have to change. One is that structure truly kind of enforces behavior, so if your structures are not in place to allow cross-functional teams, agile teams, I think that's that's one thing. And it, changing that goes some of the way to changing uh, the way people behave. Uh, instead of having handoffs between groups that have different roles, you get people near each other to solve a problem or end-to-end. So that, that seems a little mm-hmm. obvious in the, in the agile movement. The, yeah. the ad, but getting leaders to actually do that and take that step can take a lot of courage. And, and actually, the presentation I'll, I'll talk uh, about, about leadership courage is there's, there's not many silver bullets to a lot of this stuff. System thinking and leadership courage, I think, are two of the key things to really kind of think through, like, what is the behavior in the system that the structures are driving, and how would you actually change the system to incent or drive different behaviors? And then do you have the courage to put those changes in, right? Because they're, they're going to be impactful to people, and change is hard and people don't like it and they fight it. So, so how do you kind of get that in? And you're, you're probably at
1: that point as a leader, you, you're probably, especially if the broader organization, isn't oriented around seeing things that way. You're probably putting yourself at a fair amount of personal risk as well by choosing to put that thing in place.
2: Yeah. So that's the courage piece. Someone's got to be the, the bad guy, unless you have a, you know, a great opinionated leader at the top who controls all the chess pieces on the board and can come in and restructure, uh, you're not going to kind of get the easiest path. You kind of have to fight it at the, uh, what I would say kind of the peer level and figure out, you know, what's the best, you know, kind of the best place going forward. Uh, in some cases you can convince that senior leadership that, that, you know, with the, the system thinking approach and say look these are the metrics that we see this is the wait time this is the performance it's not going to get any better unless we rethink how we structure to actually deliver value
0: yeah and that's interesting though because the the whole idea of restructuring is used so often by organizations that in thinking that that's going to drive change whereas they just shuffle the bad players around and you still end up with the same people in the same mindset, with no culture change and no uh, no real change in behavior, and you know it's insanity, right? Because you're doing the same thing and hoping for different results.
2: Well, that's the the second part of it. So, unfortunately, sometimes to change the behavior, you have to change uh, leadership in in places in the organization to now put in place really kind of the type of, of both the organization behavior that you want. So in cases we've seen, uh, it's important that you have those right leaders in place. And without those leaders setting the example of what you want as an empowered and lean organization, just changing the structure won't be enough. Yeah. Um, and and you're going to have this problem where you shuffle people around and you have to have the courage to address that problem. And if you don't, it, it's, going to continue to persist Mm -hmm. so 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 in so in this case i think there's both structure and then changes in in leadership that kind of need to occur and you can kind of buttress that with education and training so you bring along as many people as possible but at least i have not seen a case where everyone gets brought along and yeah uh, you, know, you snap your fingers and like everyone's lean, everyone's agile, Ugh. they're all bought into an empowered workforce, let's go. There's too many I-shaped resources that have been doing the same thing for 20 years and that are not going to make that jump.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah. So Scott, uh, you've already given us some, some really good ideas and some really good things to think about. Why don't you give us a little bit about your background and how you got introduced to these concepts of DevOps, kind of what you've been doing over the last several years.
2: Sure. In, in a minute.
0: No. <laughs> in, in one minute. So, you take so, a couple minutes. No. Yeah. So,
2: my, my background is really kind of hardcore software engineering. It's building large scale distributed systems for complex domains. And I'm not a process guy per se. And uh, I struggled kind of over the years, especially, you know, my, my early days were at startups where we were kind of lean and agile as a necessity. You know, you didn't have funding you kind of made do with a couple engineers and one or two ops guys and we actually just automated everything necessity so when we make the jump to a large company you kind of see this really kind of different way that you do business and you kind of always ask these questions like well i why why in the case that when i build complex software does it not get to production and does it not work right (laughs) and that's where going from a small company to a large company, I started asking that question. You know, we spend X number of years building something that never makes it to production or worse yet, or at least the, and the similar failure is you make it to production and it blows up and it doesn't work the way the customer expected. Mm-hmm. And from those series of failures over and over again, I started to really kind of ask the question that said, well, this isn't necessarily a software problem. It's really a system problem of how the, the organization is designed to deliver value or to prevent to deliver value, you know, in the, in the way that we wanted, right? You know, a lot of the organizations were designed for, quote, safety and, you know, minimizing change and, and minimizing risk. And in these cases, you're, you're kind of fighting against that. And the organizational structures that were incented kind of by the Taylor scientific method of thinking Really enforce that a lot, right? So, I got into at least this type of organizational, at least structural change and DevOps and Agile and Lean from the fact that I couldn't get my, my software into production. Is the kind of simplest simplest way yeah. simplest way to explain it.
0: So you're the so you're the dev that decided to do ops because you couldn't get what you needed.
2: Well, I, I think more than that, at first I had to kind of clean up my what I would call kind of my own backyard. We had enough problems in development that were really kind of the, the kind of the front edge of the problem, right? You know long handoffs, poor quality, a lot of design and documents and not talking to the customer. So those things we approached fixing first, right? And along with doing that, we started to put in a lot of infrastructure that resembled really kind of Jez's continuous delivery, which is, you know, automated build system, you know, prolific version control, forensic traceability through ticketing systems, yeah. uh, system testing and, and lighter weight tools. So all those things really kind of came apart as a, a cleanup in the development realm. And then we began bridging that to the operations groups in and in actually helping them use the tools using the tools in the beginning of the pipeline and not kind of creating this you know what i call kind of a a a cast system of tool ownership so you'll have like the operations team pick some great tool that development never sees and you'll have development (laughs) pick some great tool that operations never sees and then no one can figure out when something gets to production why they they don't understand what's going on right (laughs) and 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 you see that in qa and development too right the the QA development cast system of tools where only the QA folks have the testing tools and developers (laughs) only have the development tools. And of course the developers never test because they don't have the testing tools. (laughs) So, (laughs) so a lot of those things we cleaned up and then we started to kind of push to the, you know, depending on how you look at the picture, if you look at, at operations on the right hand side, we start pushing that to the right hand side and finding advocates over the years that believed in the same type of kind of end to end system optimization so that we would now get at least the quality pushed all the way to, into the production realm.
1: And if I, so if I recall Scott, um, so I had the opportunity of seeing you at the, um, enterprise DevOps summit last fall that, that Gene Kim had put on. Yep. And we both, both presented there. So, got, so I got to talk at the speaker's dinner and then, then I think we presented right next to each other. So I loved your presentation. I, I had to go watch it afterwards cause I was still kind of coming down after by, but it, you had so many insights and tips, and I'm really prescriptive on um, things people can do. But so there's a few questions I have there, and and um, I'll, I'll kind of start start at the beginning. I also remember uh, you saying the night before that you had like you were like we, I think we were having drinks before your your presentation I day. You were like, "Man, I have I have ten hours of content that I need to figure out how to <laughs> how to cut into thirty minutes." <laughs> Add, well, yeah,
2: uh, it ended, ended up being 24 minutes, right? you got to cut it enough yeah.
1: to leave, leave space for the, uh, for the gaps. So. Yeah. <laughs> but um, one thing I really liked about your talk is, you know, a lot of people that, that apply these kind of lean practices, you hear it a lot in, you know, the, the e-commerce, like website, web space. But to me, it, like if I, if I recall what you were talking about, you showed doing it in a lot of different parts of your portfolio, and even some some legacy systems, if I recall. Can you talk a little bit about that app portfolio and kind of some key areas where you you drove these DevOps or Lean techniques?
2: Yeah, so we've got what you could consider a very legacy portfolio. It's a very healthy portfolio, but it's built on a set of technologies that span some 30-year time frame. Everything from mainframe assembly to front end JavaScript applications that run on mobile. Right. So you've kind of got the breadth of of everything. Not only you have a lot of technologies, you don't have a lot of we we don't have a lot of commonality. So you've got, you know, every team that kind of has a different technology stack. So one of the things as, as part of, you know, of, of the optimizations we've looked at is at the lowest level, we've kind of put in this kind of continuous delivery pipeline and we've got as many teams as possible using that. So you now you've got kind of a factory mentality that at least if we're producing code, we're producing it in a similar or identical way across the teams. And so that's that's pretty important. The other thing that we've, we've gone about to do is really kind of look at, and this really kind of comes to a piece of what, what I say kind of is Conway's law, is that, if you organize groups around technology, you'll kind of get systems that are, are isolated by those technologies, right? So mm-hmm. if I if if I got if I have a, a tuxedo specific team, there'll always be a tuxedo specific team, right? So and, and we had we, we had that problem and, and so we actually look at again changing the structure in those areas to incent the right behavior. So, if our standard is, um, and we use a lot of .NET, so don't hold that against us, but our 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 standard uh, is is .NET for a lot of the the infrastructure we built over the last couple of years, and we basically taken and reorganized the teams so that you have tuxedo resources on the .NET teams, and now we move to that standard across all the apps. And so you're now structuring the teams to get the right behavior, but you're also optimizing the system for simplicity and reuse. And mm. that's really important because if your whip limits are really high because you're managing complexity, you're not getting any new features into the system.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And my focus has really been a lot around how do we make the sim- the system simpler, fewer technologies, increase the knowledge sharing, simplify the operations experience so that we can have our folks of doing new stuff right and not doing break fix every single day when we get a config file wrong on one of the 20 middlewares that we get into production
1: what did that transition look like so you know even back to our dialogue at the beginning leader mindsets and you know someone probably had the the idea to, to you know organize around technology before and like how did you even start to be able to Make those types of changes. What did you do to get the right kind of buy-in and engagement early on?
2: Well, I I'd like—I I'd like to say it was magical, but I don't think it is. It's just <laughs> kind of a lot of a, a lot of hard work. So, in in the specific area, we built like a new middleware platform for a lot of our new products, and we were able to show that that gave us good results there. And then we continued to kind of have. For all the products that we had previously built, you know, what if you kind of look at the Horizon model, right, Horizon 1, 2, and 3, like all the Horizon 1 products, the products that were rich and had been there a lot, many years, we just continue to kind of have reliability problems with them. And we also continue to have um, what I would call resistance to change. They're just hard to change yeah, and not as – as agile as the new stack
0: so Scott do me a favor um, for the listeners that may not know explain this idea of horizon one two and three
2: okay so the, the horizon model Horizon one two and three you kinda have your current mature products you have your uh, evolving products in horizon two and then you have your future hopefully disruptive products in horizon three and you kinda manage your portfolio differently that way right you milk your horizon your horizon one for cash your horizon two you invest a little bit speculatively in horizon three you invest on on risky stuff that you're going to have for long term
0: okay so this would be uh the equivalent of like a legacy application would be typically in horizon one you're not doing a lot of updates to it you're it's stable you want to make sure that it doesn't go down because it captures a lot of cash for you whereas in horizon three you might be looking at newer technologies to be building that application and 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 that Application that supports that business
2: or, or or a new application that completely disrupts a new business, right, right? Yeah, and horizon three is really kind of disruptive. You're looking out there a few years. And so we, we've got stuff across that portfolio. I've got in my group. I have a lot of the horizon one products, you know, they're they're traditional. They're they're good products, but and and They, they kind of some of them bridge between the two horizons because we still get a ton of feature requests to enhance those products because we have such an established customer base the problem we're having is we couldn't make those changes without disruption in the operational environment because the systems were so brittle and hard to manage mm-hmm. and and resilient so in even in the horizon one viewpoint we couldn't free up capacity to work on that new stuff because we spend so much time break fixing. and then and then when you're doing that your customers are getting upset right because one they're not getting the features and two when you do make a change they get disrupted so kind of kind of back to what what drove it a, a lot of it not magical was really around quality like how do we get the quality levels to a much higher satisfaction point drive the the whip limits down on our team so that they could focus on new features and not focus on keeping the system up when we made changes so that's kind of what spurred a bunch of it and then the kind of next next part of it kind of comes a little bit to the courage piece we talked about before and and if you've read much of um i think jez's new book the lean enterprise we kind of just ran an experiment we 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 went and said hey we got this legacy middleware platform that's really problematic it's it's really difficult to run it's expensive we're afraid to touch it. It's got a million parts. It looks like one of those Rube kind of Goldberg. Like if you drew it, you would end up with a real Rube Goldberg device. And and we said, let's do an experiment. Let's go take one of those transactions like, and let's go port it to this new middleware. And we'll do automated testing and all the other great stuff and automatic deployment. And let's see the results that we get. And we'll try it with like, there are like 200 transactions. We'll try it with one. We tried it with one, and it, it took us a surprisingly short amount of time to do it, and the results were fantastic. And we offloaded just with that one transaction about – I think it was about 10% of the production volume first, oh, uh, wow. just that one tran, because it was a heavily used triant. So then we just started going tran by trend, moving all this, and as we did it, we freed up uh, a lot of capacity because we were no longer breaking stuff. And and some of it was the technology was just so much better than what was there, the practices around continuous uh, deployment and delivery and continuous and then testing were all kind of baked into the infrastructure, and all those things gave us quality levels that were effectively near perfect quality levels, and those are things that people had never seen before for things that we were releasing to production, so we kind of built on that experiment a level of credibility to now kind of do this at a larger scale. And how long ago was that? When did you do that first experiment? So that was probably 2011, 12. Um, it was kind of 2011. We did the time frame, and we did the first release in 2012. And so now we're approaching, uh, we're, we're in 2015 and we're about 95% complete with that application port. And we've also started other applications uh to move to the same platform in the same pipeline
0: so it's interesting because usually in these types of scenarios like it always looks like a, a daunting task but if like time and time again the story seems to be is just start small just do a little something to get better a little bit right and then take that success and move that success forward right so the kind of uh, the idea of incremental success
2: yeah, and and I think uh, Jess hits that on his book. I mean, you got to know one that first: are you building the right thing, and then second, are you building it right? And and by doing small experiments like that, they're easy enough to throw away and try something else. Yeah. So, so we kind of had a hypothesis, knowing what we knew about this infrastructure, and this middleware, that it could provide great value to us on our legacy platform.
0: And so, were there challenges to kind of present this idea of? let's do a small experiment, let's see how well it would work, and and how in kind of a – if it was a traditional organization at the time, what what were the challenges to try and get that uh, accepted?
2: I mean, I think the challenges were there, but they weren't that bad. And it's mainly because of the fact that our performance wasn't as good as we wanted it to be. We kind of weren't living up to our expectations of how our quality should be, and that was – that was pretty much everyone saw eye to eye on that no one was saying hey you know things are great so it was easy to use that as a platform to say that we we need to make these changes so there wasn't a lot of you know months of running around trying to convince people is the right thing to do we were kind of looking for an answer and this was one that that had good viability on, on where where we where we should go when
0: the when the patient's bleeding on the table you you tend to you tend to make <laughs> yeah. decisions very quickly
2: uh, yeah more more or less you know it was it was kind of we knew the quality level was not it was wasn't living up to both neither ours or our clients expectations yeah you back
1: to your uh, your talk at, at the conference last fall so you shared I think you shared ten tips for folks and a lot of them resonated with me. I'd be interested. Do you have a few? If you just think about enterprises in general, are there a few of those tips you'd you'd like to highlight? And I know you've already kind of touched on on some throughout the discussion. And a couple that I will tell you just resonate with me almost because I, you know I, I think the names cool as well. In addition to them being awesome ways to think about structuring work, was the uh, I think you had the reverse Conway maneuver and the reverse Taylor maneuver.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I think those are two. You know, I kind of really start all this and Ross at at the target presentation will talk about it is there aren't any silver bullets uh, except really kind of taking a lean systems thinking approach to how you look at the behaviors. And then second, obviously the courage to kind of make the changes that are are needed. And then you kind of go into, okay, what are some of those changes you, you could execute, right? So a common problem, right? You've got isolation of roles and a lot of resources that can't optimize across the pipeline and really kind of addressing that I think is recognizing that as if that is your problem and addressing that is kind of key and that's the that's really that inverse Taylor maneuver and I kind of coined that from the inverse Conway maneuver and the first place I saw that quoted was on Martin Fowler's technology radar I think in June of last year uh, previously I didn't really have a name for that technique although we had been doing it for years and after I saw that I said okay that's what I'm going to use and then I'll also use it for the inverse Conway maneuver or sorry invoice invoice Taylor maneuver so to kind of use a, a congruent verbiage for both of those changes in place um, I think those are, are two things that realizing if those are your problems and then actually making the changes are are vital uh, obviously in there, in there are other points around just how important you know continuous delivery and having a build, before oh, we go there, though, can
1: you yep. just for our guests can you can you share a little bit about what those two maneuvers are?
2: Sure. So from uh, from Invoice, inverse Taylor, we talked a little bit about it. So the Taylor method of management really focused on creating organizations by role and really optimizing roles. So uh, it worked okay in non-creative work, but they still saw significant problems in non-creative work of, of over-optimizing by role. And Kevin Baer has a great presentation about work in the coal mines and how they saw that the performance of coal mines that had cross-functional workers were, I, I believe it was 40% better than coal mines that did not. And really kind of across a lot of industries, we've seen that isolation and specialization in role provides suboptimal system end-to-end system behavior. And so organizations, and especially with Waterfall, and also with development and operations divide, have really kind of seen that same thing occur. Development had the traditional, I'm going to have architecture and design in one group, I'm going to have people developing the code in a different group, I'm going to have QA in another group, and I will have different leaders of each of those organizations optimize each of those specific roles. (laughs) The challenge of course is that the system doesn't behave very well when you do that, right? Yeah. You get you get people that can test but they can't test software that actually is going to, you know, provide value end to end and you get developers that build stuff that can't be tested and you get architects that design things that can't be developed or tested. So it kind <laughs> of it, it kind of creates this you know really kind of very myopic view and you you end up actually designing an organization that hires what I would call for skill and doesn't hire for talent because they go out looking for I just need someone who can test. I don't necessarily need someone that can think or that has kind of broad skills and and, and that's not the beat on testers, it's the same for developers and same for the other roles. And so yeah.
0: if And that's the problem over and over again, right? Is that as we've all went through trying to get hired for a job, right? If you don't meet the skill criteria, you won't even get in the door, right? Yep. And it's, I think hiring is still, we had a conversation with, uh, when we had Target on a, a few episodes ago of this idea of, of hiring for this kind of role. And uh, I think hiring still has a, a long way to go to get out of that kind of mindset. And, yeah the saying by andrew clay schaefer is that there is no talent shortage right the talent shortage is actually a myth it's just the way that we're we're seeing that talent and the way that we're categorizing that talent because they don't have the right skills right yep
2: and and if you look actually like even apple now has their own university and they hire they hire you know liberal arts majors that are you know thinkers and train them in development or other areas right so you know, you're seeing leading companies really kind of challenge this notion that I need to hire, you know, a C++ developer, you know, and, and I have to have someone with that skill, right? They're kind of yeah. saying, well, I need someone that can think and solve problems, and I can train them to do X, Y, or Z, as long as they actually have the mindset of kind of continuous learning and exploration, right? And, and, and I think that's extremely important. And obviously, as the 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 talent pool continues to be you know extremely competitive you kind of got to look in all those other areas to say where where are talented people that can now um learn in in your organization grow and and really kind of not just learn the job but also evolve the 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 job into actually what it's going to be in the future
1: do you see these are your goats man yeah exactly (laughs) it's the goat farm
2: um, so, so that was, so that was the, the, the Taylor maneuver, uh, the inverse Taylor maneuver, the, the inverse Conway maneuver. And we talked a little bit about it is really kind of looking at the places where you've created those technology silos and you've created basically systems that represent your organizational structure, which is kind of what Con- Conway's law predicts and really kind of inverting those. So really kind of say, well, what would an ideal system look like, right? If. If I had a standard software stack and I had continuous delivery and automated testing across everything and I could have one ops team that ran the whole thing, what are the, the structures that I have in place and then what are the technology artifacts that have been created from those structures that I need to unwind to now provide really kind of the, the, the target system that I want? Right. And so it's 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 not as just simple as drawing on the board. Hey, this is the architecture I want. Like, go do it. It's it's now kind of thinking through why the organizational structure would prevent you from getting to that optimal architecture.
1: Interesting. You know, as you've pivoted to these kind of new models, how does governance apply? I mean, that's a big topic in enterprises, obviously, and and it's a it can be a sticky topic in kind of the agile and DevOps communities because you know people don't like to be over governed. Yeah how do you how does that apply how has that applied as you've kind of pivoted to some of these new techniques
2: it's hard I'll tell you that because and and again everyone wants an easy answer to either the governance or enterprise architecture problem and, and I don't think I have the, the best answer to it but what we've tried to do is basically set standards from a technology standpoint and how we select those technologies and we do that at the portfolio level so we kind of have a technology selection process that we go through and we select something it goes for review and we approve that and then the teams consume it and then we basically socialize with the community that this is our selection so for example our selection for you know a database might be oracle and our selection for test automation might be SpecFlow right and we really try to set that then as the standard and i'm going to say enforce but really kind of convince people of the benefits of getting the sharing both on the development side but really on the operations side also on what that consistency of choosing a smaller set of technologies buys you right mm-hmm. if, if i've i've got an ops if i've got ops teams running nine data nine different database platforms that, that's not better than running one, right it's 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 at least nine times as worse. It actually is probably worse than that because you get no practice sharing on how you would um, uh, run those platforms. And if you kind of think of this, the challenging thing about this is everyone wants to equate everything to manufacturing and and some things translate really hmm. well, and some things don't. But in this case, if you think of manufacturing, they build a factory with standard machinery. And then they run they run a a standard uh, manufacturing pipeline that uses like the same components as in many places as possible. They don't choose like if I've had a factory like different assembly lines that all have different manufacturing techniques devices on it. Right. They they standardize that because they know that's how they get the efficiency at scale. But you see these enterprises, just because it's software and it seems really easy to pick a different database, they pick one. But they don't realize the kind of large-scale implications of that, of how you operationalize it, how you do HA, how you do DR, how you encrypt for PCI. There's all these things that now all of a sudden you have to do nine different times because you have nine different technologies. Yeah. And then, of course, the balance is how do you innovate then if – every decision like that has to actually be put put through a board. And that's something we struggle with literally every day where someone wants the newest X or Y and they have to justify effectively what is, what are you getting from that, that you don't get today, right? Why is that more beneficial than what we actually have deployed on the floor? And 90% of the time it doesn't. And we, we have to say, look, you've got this technology on the floor. Let's use it. Let's, get, let's use that consistency, 10% of the time there's something innovative or differentiating or it's beneficial for us to have a different technology there, and then we, we kind of bring it through.
0: So with that 10% or, or before teams take that kind of uh, that, that technology outlier to this board, are they allowed to at least experiment to try and get data to actually help drive the board's decision of why it might be beneficial?
2: Oh, sure. So there's nothing wrong with trying it out, but we have have a board, the Architecture Review Board, that's composed of both development and operations members. And we look at this and we say, look, are we going to be able to operationalize this new technology that we bring in? You know, can we secure it? Can we run it highly available across multiple data centers? Like all those things that, you know, it's easy to spin it up on your desktop and realize that this technology is great and in 10 minutes you're you know you've got to integrate your application it's much harder to take that and say i'm going to run it with all these operational constraints on it so the board kind of sits as that as that arbitrator that really kind of asks those questions it says look have you really kind of thought through all these things and have you looked at these other technologies that we have that are actually doing what you're asking for you just maybe weren't aware of it
0: yeah interesting
2: i think that's great though that
1: you know, I think for a lot of enterprises that, that I've interacted with, governance can be so strong that, that people aren't even encouraged to explore before they go and have that discussion. Like and you, and you,
2: we're – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Rob.
1: No, no I was just going to – expand. go ahead. I was basically saying that, um, yeah, so, so they, they disincentive even innovate or explore at all because they have to go through some kind of approvals or steps before they can even really explore that new technology.
2: And, and really involving the teams in the process and, and working with, you know, all of our teams have like a lead architect. And so really kind of working with those architects, we try to really educate them on, you know, we're not trying to be just jerks because we want to say no, but really think about what the business differentiator of choosing something different brings us. And then also think of the operational complexity that it presents us to, right? And, and, and. Maybe it brain makes things simpler, right? And we should consider it, and that we should have the discussion on also. But then you kind of get advocates that are at least kind of thinking in the same mindset and saying and asking the questions: Okay, do we really need something else to solve this, or, or do we have something already that that could do it? Now, as far as other pieces of governance, you know, when you start to get in security and other areas, those are areas where we continually try to improve, and and we're doing more now to try to push those back to teams but that's an area of growth for us so trying to get the teams to do like their own security scans you know static and dynamic scanning we're, we're just kind of starting on that also audit compliance and, and those types of things those are things we're kind of just starting to say look how do we get that into the process but then really most importantly how do we get that into the purview of the teams so when they're not when they're designing the systems when they're Doing the builds every day, like all that stuff that's happening in the machinery, we want the security audits. We want all that stuff to be incorporated in so that by the time you get to production, you've already done it 70 times. And it's not a surprise when we deploy it and the security restrictions completely lock out the solution. Right? That's not, not the result we want. Right.
0: Well, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. We we are really lucky to have you on. Some really good insights on managing DevOps in a large-scale organization. So I really appreciate having you on.
2: Uh, well, I, great, I greatly enjoyed it. So uh, let me know if you guys have any other questions offline. I'll we'll be happy to answer.
0: Sure.
1: I'll uh, definitely be picking your brain at uh, when you come out to Target next month. <laughs> sure. I actually do see well too. He's, he's going to join us for that event.
0: So Scott, we uh, we really appreciate having you on. Can you tell our listeners uh, how they might be able to get a hold of you either via email or Twitter or, or otherwise, and where they might see you next?
2: Sure. the The easiest way uh, is Twitter at uh, Scott uh, so you can uh, you can send me a message there. And then I think next uh, you'll probably see me at the Target Conference, and then I also will be presenting. In uh, Omaha at the uh, AIM Infotech conference, and that is in the it's a uh, mid-April timeframe. And then I um, haven't decided later in the year. Going back and forth on Agile 2015, I don't know if I can make that one. And then I'm trying to make uh, Enterprise DevOps 15, which is in San Francisco in October.
0: Great, thanks. So Ross, uh, any final thoughts from you? And where can people get a hold of you? As always. Well,
1: hopefully people are, uh, are ongoing listeners, so they'll, they'll know my, uh, my Twitter handle is Ross Clinton, a pretty hard one to, to forget. I've got a lot going on at Target right now, so I've been focusing my energies on getting us ready for our, uh, some of our DevOps events there. I think I've talked previously um, on, this, on previous episodes about our DevOps days, our fourth one actually coming up this week in two days. And uh, I just thought I'd give an update there. That, it's crazy, that is taking off. So our first three events, you know, we started DevOps, Bottoms Up, um, really wanted to focus on the cultural movement. And we were averaging between, I'd say, 150 and 200 attendees for our first three events. And I think we're at about 400 accepts for our event this week. So. Wow. Um, we're going to double our previous record easily, I think. We even had to move to a bigger space. So now I'm, this week I'm all worried about how do we still pull that off and have it be, you know how those DevOps days events feel. There's an energy, there, there's an informality, there, there's, you know, you don't want it to turn into like a big formal yeah like
0: how do you scale it uh, as as uh, James Governor of Red Monk would say is is how do you scale it but still keep kind of the craft aspect of it right yeah
1: so I feel like we're gonna have our work cut out for us and I know you're one of our speakers so i'm gonna I'm gonna be looking to you to to, to keep keep the informality and the energy up along with some of the other folks I, does that confident. mean I get a cuss <laughs> you gotta be a somewhat behaved you're like uh <laughs> you'll be um, late in the day so you'll get you'll get to see where everyone else is going and you know you have so uh scott Michael presented at our very first devops days it'll be about a year ago exactly almost, and you'll see how much the culture's changed there's there's definitely uh there's even more openness to some of the stuff that that, that we've been doing and and there's a an enormous lean in which has been exciting you know I've always talked about how devops I feel strongly that it's important for it to be bottoms up and it's about the culture and it's about the movement and it's about the, the people doing the work really choosing to to lean in and figure this stuff out. But it is nice to have the tops down coming in pretty heavy too now and um, it definitely helps with um, kind of that movement continuing to expand.
0: That's awesome. I'm excited to see the the progress you've made. And uh, one thing I'll offer up uh, on your behalf, if anyone is interested in how to run kind of their own DevOps Days conference or a conference internally, you know, it's something that I'm seeing more and more of. Uh, So GE did one recently that I'm aware of. I know Procter & Gamble is doing one uh, upcoming in in actually in March. Uh ING Bank has been doing, and the Netherlands have been doing them for a while. Target's been doing them for a while as well. And Cerner as well in Kansas City has been doing them. So I really encourage you as a good way of kind of spreading the message throughout your organization, especially larger organizations, of having kind of those internal conferences. And I know Ross would be more than happy to talk to anyone about how to set that up and how to get that going in your organization. So what country are you flying to next, Ducey? Uh, I'm actually, global evangelist role. I actually just got back from uh, Tokyo on Saturday, and I'm still not over the jet lag. So we'll see how the next couple of days go, especially now that I'm, I'm going to Minneapolis. Uh, and I don't have any international trips planned until um, probably the summer sometime. But I, I did learn that I will be at Interop, speaking at Interop, at the end of April. Uh, and then, of course, ChefConf is coming up. And a reminder for anyone who would like 10% off a ChefConf pass, uh, you can use the code "The Farm" at checkout, and it'll take 10% off your order. <laughs> well, that just about does it for another episode. Uh, thanks again, Ross. Thanks again, Scott, for coming on. No worries. That's... Thank you, guys. Thank you. And as always, remember, be, be the, the goat. goat. <laughs> hey, I think we finally got it that time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha